Hello and welcome to One for the Road. I'm Cam Washington. I'm with Randy and Bob. And today we are with Hugh Henderson. Hugh has just opened his own hospice care. And today he's going to clear up a lot of confusion about hospice and then enlighten us about the care he actually offers and how it is life changing for the families. Enjoy. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing. You know, and uh, do, you, do you say, is it, is it okay to say hospice industry? I hate the way that sounds. Well, to me it does. <laughs> but, but yeah, it does sound kind of funny, but, um, but that's, I, I think that that's okay. I mean, okay. or hospice field, or, okay. you know. Or, okay. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have been involved uh, in the hospice field. And uh, how long you been? How long you been doing that? How long you been I have been doing that. Um, next year will be my twenty fifth year oh, of doing wow. it. So, twenty four years started in nineteen ninety two. And recently, you've gone out on your own, right? I have uh, about a year ago. Um, decided to uh, take a leap of faith and uh, start my own hospice, and did that. Um, uh, almost exactly a year ago, I, I put the wheels in motion, I guess, last summer, but we moved into office space last October. And um, so October 1 marked one year that we had been in our office space. And so had to renew the lease and this time renewed for a three-year term instead of a one-year term. So mm-hmm. now I'm in it for good. <laughs> Congratulations on that. That's yeah. awesome. Thanks. Good. So are you saying that one day we're going to put you in hospice? Is that what it'll uh, Well, I mean, if, if I need it, I'll, yeah. I'll definitely, I would be hypocritical if I didn't yes, take of course, it. Right. <laughs> so right. Let's hope I don't. I always tell people, you know, just uh, I, I tell them what I do, and I say, I hope you don't need me right. uh, for quite a while. Well, here's, let's do this. For our people, define, define hospice. What is that? What is that? Yeah, that, that is a great place to start. Because if I stopped uh, Joe Public on the street, and, and maybe you guys and probably a lot of the listeners and ask you what your definition would be is probably going to be something along the lines of hospice is a place, it's an address uh, that you go when you have when you are imminently dying when you are in your last week or two of life and you have cancer. That's generally speaking what most people think hospice is. Uh, and does, but it's much more than that. It's it's not a place as much as it is a concept. It's a concept of care that um, hospice is, and it, it's the the vast, the overwhelming majority of hospice care is delivered in the home or in the residence of that individual. Maybe in their private address, maybe in a nursing home, maybe in an assisted living, um, but rarely do people go into a building for hospice care right. I mean that's what you see on television and things like that and so right. it kind of perpetuates that that misconception but um, but it really is a misconception I mean and from just a, a purely a, a Medicare standpoint about 90 plus 95 percent of the the days of that are billed under Medicare are for that home care at, a, at a, in a home care type rate right yeah so would you say primarily it would be in the home? I would say primarily yes. Okay. Yes, it has, it has, um, you know, as the demographics have changed over the years, it's changed from the standpoint of the hospice is much more prevalent now in assisted living facilities and in nursing homes, um, but still a large number of hospice care is provided in a private residence in a private home, um, or if someone has moved in with their children, it may be in their home. 
So if someone goes under hospice care, does that signal that they are uh, on the verge of dying? Yeah, so so just to kind of correct that, why that's a misconception of right. a place. And, and so so to be eligible for hospice care, uh, you have to have a six months or less life expectancy that is certified by the physician. So it can't be, you know, you call me up and say, my mom, I, I think she might need hospice care. We'd like to use it. I, I, I would say that's fine, but I have to call her doctor first, and we have to get an order, a physician's order to start that care. So, so the time frame that we're looking at is six months or less, um, and it's for any diagnosis. So what is surprising to a lot of people is that um, only about a third of hospice patients are cancer patients, but um, mm. two-thirds of hospice patients are for non-cancer, maybe things like end-stage renal disease, um, Alzheimer's uh, dementia is the fastest-growing hospice diagnosis that's out there. Uh, it could be congestive heart failure, um, pulmonary disease, things like that. So, uh, and that's been a shift over the, 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 you know, the two and a half decades that I've been doing this. It, when I first started, it was about 75% of hospice patients were cancer patients, mm-hmm. maybe 80%, and that's kind of flip-flopped. And so now it's it's more and more the non-cancer. So I think that's a good thing is that people are recognizing that um, many people may qualify for the services. Uh, but our biggest challenge in the industry is that people um, still cling to that misconception and that we don't have long enough to serve people. And that is that uh, on a national level, 50% of people that get hospice care don't even get it for 14 days. And you have a six-month eligibility, mm. but yet only a lot of people are getting it in the last two weeks of life, which we're happy to serve those people, and we will do it, and it does make a difference. But there is they don't get the full benefit of having months to work with someone versus days or, or hours. Well, a lot of it is... it's it's. Um, I guess to answer that, I have to talk about kind of what 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 is included in hospice care and the, the the services you get. It's not just nursing; it's an interdisciplinary um, team approach. That, that it's a team of professionals, and so you the, that team is going to consist of a registered nurse, but it's also going to consist of a, a nursing assistant. It's going to be a social worker that's master's level, um, licensed, trained in counseling. And a chaplain is also part of the hospice team. So every patient that we serve, and we see the patient and the family is really one central unit, but they get assigned all of those services. So the longer you have to work with someone, the more full benefit they get of all that, uh, of the relational aspect of working with people, helping them process their issues. And, and many times, and probably not surprisingly, uh, to you guys because you're, you're, you're in ministry, but um, lots of times we do more work with the families than we do the patient. Mm-hmm. The patient's fine. Um, you know, they've made peace with their, with their end, so to speak, but the families are not coping well. And so we're doing a lot of psychosocial and spiritual work with them. And, and hospice is, to my knowledge, um, I think it's the only federally funded program that I'm aware of that actually mandates that you have a chaplain involved that, hmm. that is a, a nod to the the, the spiritual importance of, of wow. end-of-life care. Wow. Um, so I, I can't call myself a hospice if I don't have a, 
a chaplain on staff with me. And they have to have certain a number of um, pastoral education requirements to right. to be able to do that. They have to be ordained. Right. Um, so it's a... Uh, um, I just think that that's kind of interesting to me that the government will will pay for that, and they say it's got to be you know you have to have that as part of your care. Now, before we ask you in terms of just the, the day to day stuff, uh, I'm just curious why you know growing up I don't remember hearing that word. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what what brought it about here in the U.S.? Um, so the it really hasn't been the the first hospice in the United States was in the late seventies in New Haven, Connecticut. It was recognized in the um, nineteen eighty four by Medicare recognized it as a reimbursable service. So in the if you look at the history of medicine, I mean it's only been around since nineteen eighty four. And that's why you don't remember it growing up. Right. And that's why when we were, you know, when I got into this in the early 90s, even nobody had even heard of the word hospice. I got all kinds of crazy pronouncements of hospic and hospice. And, <laughs> and you had to explain the word. Now people know the word, but their definition may be something different than what it really is. So we're making progress. At least we have, we're, we're part of the, the vocabulary now. And now it's just getting the right definitions with people. Right. But the reason why you don't remember it is because it was um, it, it it wasn't it wasn't around until the mid '80s, and it really didn't become you know part of the culture, I guess, until more commonplace until the the, the early '90s. Hmm. Um, so we've not been around that long. What was the reason why it came about? I mean, what? I I, I mean, I think that there were um, you know the public consciousness around mm. that dying in a hospital which was really your only option right then when you got sick you went to the hospital right. was just not a good death mm. right. I mean that's just not most mm. people don't want that and right. and wouldn't have wanted it and I think there was an awareness of that of people saying you know there's got to be an alternative to that um, mm. I mean it, it, I, I think you know, certainly economics play a role. I mean, it's it's the, um, you know, you probably heard the statistics of, uh, you know, 80% of the Medicare dollars that someone spends in their lifetime are in the last yeah. year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're, and so there's the, um, the economics of, of people. Not only is it not, doesn't really lend itself to the dignity of the individual to go to a hospital and be there, but but there's also it's expensive, so if we can keep people at home, that that helps from that standpoint. So I think that was a part of it. Um, you know, so I think that those were those were probably two of the driving factors. But I think it was just mainly more than anything, it was just people saying this is a specialty in itself. At this pain management and making sure that people's pain is controlled and they are comfortable. And, like, what do we do? Hospitals are all centered around cure. It's all around cure. What are we going to do to make people better? we got to make them better. And so that's why it doesn't really work there. And so we needed an alternative to that. And so, um, and I think that's where hospice stepped in, and that's where it really kind of resonated with people. And the people said, finally, you know, there's something, there's an alternative to just being in pain and then going in the hospital and staying there till you die. I think, and you know, I did limited research for this podcast, as I often do. Oh, well, you usually uh, read like three or four books. Yeah, you usually read about four books, see six movies, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, 
you know, one of, one of the, 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 the key factors early on that kind of promoted the whole idea of hospice was when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the book right. on yeah. death and dying. Yeah. So she interviewed about 500 people. And uh, uh, what happened when she interviewed those people, she got this sense of, hey, here are the stages. If someone who knows they're terminally ill or thinks they're ter- maybe terminally ill, they go through these stages. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, four, here, here's, here's what they are. Uh, and kind of out of that... There was between her and the, there was a woman in London, I can't remember her name, who, who kind of said there's this. Cicely Saunders. Yes. So you're talking there you go, about. Cicely yeah. Saunders, there you go. Who said there's got to be a different way because um, to, to your point, hospitals saying that we're going to cure you, we're going to cure you, we're going to give you more medicine, we're going to do another surgery, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to Kubler-Ross's work was, look, they're going to die. And they're going through these stages. There's denial, and I can't remember what the other ones are, but... but um, this whole idea of what does it mean to have a holistic system to deal with yeah. the, the physical pain and the issues there, dealing with the family. Mm. they got to come to grips with it. How, this hospice, I think, touches on that also. Absolutely. Talk on that. It's a central unit there. And then, then spiritually, okay, where, where are you at? What are you, what, how are we going to deal with that? So holistically to say, okay, there's a pathway here. And, and, and to your point, which is just great, a minute ago you said, in 14 days you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. can't. That's why, you know... Uh, not, not that I would say the government does all things great, but the idea of there being a six-month window here um, for someone to give them a process through this. But but families, I think, say, mm, it's going to be okay. Grandma's going to get okay. Mom's going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. It's yeah. all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Yeah. Oh, she's got about 14 days left to live. Let's get hospice in. Yeah. So I well, think one of those stages is denial. Is like, exactly, exactly. And, <laughs> and the family's in denial. The person may, the person may not be in denial. The person may say, hey, I'm going. And yeah. the family said, no, 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 you're not going. It's going to be okay. We're going to make it happen. We're going to, we're going to call MD Anderson. We're going to take you to the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. But you're not going to go type thing. So you, the, that window gets shortened as opposed to, and I think part of the education thing maybe you can talk about is what does it mean to help people understand uh, that, that when you invite hospice in, it's not like you're inviting the Grim Reaper. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what people think. I'm inviting the Grim Reaper into this. This guilty. nurse is going to come she's there with that. Guilty as charged. Yeah, the thing. And that she's giving up. The means we're giving up. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's a death watch from this point forward. Yeah. And as that's opposed not to it saying, at all. Yeah. So, that's, uh, so maybe can you share from your experience some stories like that where where you feel like maybe you've, you've just had to, I don't know, press in is the word, not the right word, but but help help someone understand no, yeah. this is good. Well, so, uh, yeah, so when we go out and, and we meet with people, I mean, we have this discussion. We always start with kind of what are, what do you know up to this point? Mm-hmm. You know, what's your understanding of what's happening? But um, is to really, you know, work with people as to, okay, what are your goals? What, what are we trying to do here? And we tell them, okay, what our goals are as a hospice, and you can decide if this is good for you, is that... Everything that we make is going to be filtered through the, 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 the lens of, is it going to give you greater comfort and greater quality of life? Those are our two priorities, mm-hmm. comfort and quality of life. And they're, they're inextricably linked, too. I mean, you can't have one without the other. But um, if that's your goal, if you want to maximize your quality of life and you want to be as comfortable as possible, and that may be emotional comfort, it may be spiritual comfort, it may be physical comfort, uh, but if that's your goal, then that's what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my my you know favorite stories to to that point is you know like they did a Gallup survey. This is about ten years ago, 
and they said, you know, if you could, if you, if you could have hospice, would you want it? And, you know, about 20% of people said, yeah, they'd want it. But then they said, if you could have a program that would give you a nurse and a social worker mm-hmm. and a chaplain and would, and would give you greater comfort and quality of life, and would you want that? Well, 80% of the people right. said, yeah, I'd want yeah. that. Well, it's the same thing. And so it's just a matter of correcting those misconceptions. But it, but the other thing that people tend to think about is it's not um, it's not assisted suicide either. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it's very much around the dignity of that individual mm-hmm. and what is the most, um, you, you know, what's going to contribute to their dignity more than anything else. And so... The best quote is, you know, in hospice, we don't do anything to hasten, nor do we do anything to postpone the death. We're dealing with things as they are day to day, but we're not doing anything to speed it up, nor are we trying to slow it down. And some people think that, well, the other thing is they think why why they're scared of hospice is if we go in hospice, they're just going to load her up on morphine and she's going to die. Right. And so, and so we don't want that because once she gets on that morphine, whoa, or or she might get addicted to morphine, and mm-hmm. I'm like, that's the worst. That's the last thing we need to be worried about right now. Right. As, um, but uh, so that that that's kind of you know to your point about just the the family as a central unit and and that type of thing. You know, it's interesting because uh, those of you know we're we're here with Hugh and Bob and Cam is with us, Cam Washington is our resident for this year, and he's kind of the young man in the room. He's not kind of the young man in the room. He is the young man. Are you the young man in the room? You are. I am the young man in the room. Uh, so I'm going to kind of set him up here for a second. Do you have a will? I do not. You don't have a will. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, you just got married about seven months ago. He doesn't have a will. Okay. <laughs> probably have one of those. So you probably should get one of those. So that, right. that's probably another topic for another time. Another we're talking about wills. will and hospice. Where's this going? Yeah. Like, <laughs> where's this going? That's right. That's right. Cam is now working. Not going to be anytime soon. He's now working in the shepherd. Yeah, his death could be imminent uh, <laughs> from anybody. But you know, as I'm sitting here, as so I'm thinking, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking. When you're in the emotional moment of your loved one, right. like right, dying, it's like. So I wonder if you know you can walk back the system and say you know when we write our wills. I, I know in my will, which I do have mm-hmm. a will, and Bob does. I'm assuming you do too. Uh, are you leaving any, me anything in the will? Just decide to answer real quick. I'm gonna get it on the record here, Debbie. If you're listening, Bob's leaving me nothing. Really sets people up for failure. Right. I'm leaving you my files. <laughs> That's what I'm I do not want your files. Uh, that you know, in a will, there is the um, what is that called? The don't resuscitate stuff and uh-huh. you know, all that uh-huh. stuff. Living living will kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. But I don't think there's anything in there about hospice, as I recall. But it seems to me if if people would move in that direction to say, hey, Bob, you're going to do your will. When you get within a certain, would you, in your will, do you want, because yeah. will seems to be after Well, there's a, there's a, there's a legal will. I mean, there's a, there's a will that deals with your estate mm-hmm. and then there's a living will that deals Does with that kind of your wishing, wishes for what you want and don't want okay. done in terms if you're of in a capacity. Give me a t- feeding to or, you know, what's called a durable right. power of right. attorney for health care. Right. Um, and so that's where you appoint, it's like a living will, but you appoint an agent, uh-huh. somebody to make those decisions for mm-hmm. you. But yeah, I mean, to have those discussions, I mean, 
I I will I mean I've got a living will but mm-hmm. but I will confess that I didn't get one until a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean and I've been doing this forever and I see it mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. and it's but but it's just so important because you want to make sure it's a gift you give your family because you're not putting them in a position to make that decision. Right, no, they you know what you want and don't want and so you've already made the decision for them. Mm-hmm. And that can just you, it can cause so much conflict in families if, if oh, their yeah. wishes aren't true. And oh, yeah. no, we need to discontinue the feeding tube. No, we want to start. We want to. Yeah. I mean, and that's I've experienced that firsthand. Yeah, but I think at any age is is appropriate to have a living will, yeah. and you can get them. I mean, anywhere. I mean, it, it's not like it's a hard document to come and, by, and it could include. This idea of hospice to say, hey, if yeah, because well, what you're de- usually like in a living will, you're describing kind of w- what your philosophy mm-hmm. is of of your end days, and mm-hmm. and that's where the hospice piece comes in. I mean, I don't know the living will; it, it explicitly says yes, I do or don't want hospice, mm-hmm. but but the. But the things that you're saying you do or don't want, they either line up with the hospice philosophy or they don't. Right. And right. so if you're saying you want to have a lot of aggressive, uh, curative type things done or you want to be on a ventilator, mm-hmm. um, then you're not really a candidate for hospice because right. that's not – that again, that's kind of prolonging life. Right. We're not about we're, – we're about just dealing with the symptoms as they that's are. And Let me so, ask this thing. Can, can you share about that? You said you've had personal experience without disclosing yeah, stuff that um, should be disclosed here. I – a lot of death in my both on both sides of the family happen really suddenly, um, and when they happen suddenly, it's just almost like a free for all. Like, what are we doing here? Like, how are we paying for this? Um, next of kin, like who gets what, and how do they want to be treated? How they want to be buried? Where they want to be buried? And it just kind of leaves the family with an aggressive form of closure, where it's just like we have to deal with it now. And our souls are kind of left in shambles because we don't know what to do, and um, and it just it just makes everything a lot more difficult on how to on just how to deal with things that can reveal people's priorities. And I think death is one of those things where it just it reveals a whole lot of nastiness, and it just. It just it's just unfortunate. So the idea, just I'm 25. Hopefully, by God's grace, I live to see, you know, as much of life as humanly possible. Like being old, like 16, you might yeah, even be as old as us guys. Yeah, as you guys in the room. Um, you know, I'm I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm like, this sounds sounds nice. This is something that I would want, not just for me, but for my family's sake of like mm-hmm. knowing that even though I am incapacitated to. To care for them the way I want to, that they would be in yeah proper hands. Well, I, I mean, that I, time of life. I'm so I mean, I'm, I'm admittedly biased, but yeah. when I tell people, there, there is literally no downside. Mm. I mean, there's just no downside to it. It's it's like it, it, it because what's going to happen is, and I and I'll say like the worst case, and worst is in quotation marks because. The worst thing that's going to happen is that after 90 days, Medicare is going to require us, or Medicaid, uh, depending on who their payer is, but are going to require us to recertify that they continue to meet that criteria. So the worst that could happen is that 90 days we say, you know what, you got better, you don't need us anymore. Right. So right. that's mm-hmm. a positive outcome. Let me ask you a technical question then. Let's say um, I get my 90 day, 90 days here and I get better. 
Um, is it six months lifetime? No. So, I no. so, so next so time I get sick, you I get could, another six months. You, three years later, then you 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 took a turn for the worse. You okay. can start it back up again. Okay. It's a it's an unlimited benefit. Okay. They have an. This is getting kind of technical, but it's in benefit period. So. And this is—I'm just speaking in terms of Medicare. Private insurance is different. Right. There is none of this, but but 95% of people are Medicare. So, but it's the first 90 days, the second 90 days we have to do it again, and then every 60 days afterwards. Okay. So if you were even if you were on for six months, and then you know three years later you want to start it back up again, you'd just be in one of those 60-day periods. But we gotcha. still would have to—you still could do it. Gotcha. You just have to. And when we say we recertify, we have to. The, the doctor, our medical director, has to determine that, yes, he thinks that they're still in a six months or less time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and as long as they're still meeting right. that six months right. criteria. And, and some diagnoses are easier to predict than others. Mm-hmm. I mean, the neurological, like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. very hard to predict. Right. Um, right. Cancer is very predictable for the most part, but, um, but some are not. I mean, mm-hmm. so... Uh, but they try to do their best clinical evaluation, but always better to err on the side of being, you'd rather be too early than too late yeah. and to where it's just a, it's a fire drill at the end and everything is just chaos. And, you know, we do the best that we can, but it's just, mm-hmm. they don't get the best, the so, full benefit. But what they do get in those situations is, and one thing I did mention about with with hospice care that, that again, is, is mandated that we provide is bereavement care. So we do a full 13 months of bereavement care with the family really? after the death. Really? And that's uh, and we do 13 months because you get them through that first anniversary. So there's so we will that's a lot of educational mail outs mm-hmm. that are around grief and bereavement. We'll mm-hmm. do uh, phone calls. We hook them up with support groups if we're not doing support groups ourselves. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's this whole kind of like. Um, after, safety after net there, yeah. that, that's there yeah. particularly if somebody doesn't have a, much family support mm-hmm. that that they know that they can they can contact us so we we keep a file on them for that year we follow up and there's regular contact from just a bereavement so even those short-term cases that we have they at least get the benefit of that full bereavement care yeah, so Bob you're gonna say yeah so you people listening to this uh, some have had family members in hospice uh some are probably going to have them in the future. And uh, so would you think about just basic counsel to people listening in terms of this? What are some things that just come to mind for you as you as you think about what you do and, and what you would say to people who are listening to this who... Mm-hmm. Who uh, who are going to face this? Who mm-hmm. or or you know certainly there are some who've already faced it, but yeah. who are going to face it in the future? Uh, my my general counsel would be, err on the side of being too early than too late. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, look at it from so so be proactive in having the conversation with the physician. Okay. Um, some physicians are more comfortable having that discussion than others. Um, but don't assume that they're going. Their timing is going to be right, and they're going to bring up the discussion. Because they have to, to sign off on it for them to get it. Correct. Okay. Correct. And um, and so, a lots of time. And the physicians, all they're taught in medical school is is cure, cure, mm-hmm. cure. And we're going to go. And they may actually, whether or not they will admit it, would see themselves as not being able to cure as a failure, mm-hmm. and that they they failed this patient because mm-hmm. they couldn't get them better. 
Um, so you may have to, I would encourage people to be proactive, attend those doctor's appointments with your, with your parent, if it's a parent, um, and, and asking them when, when certain interventions are talked about and you see this decline taking place in your loved one, to, I think a key question is, what, what's our goal here? I mean, what are we really trying to do? Are we hoping that will happen? Um, and, and I think when you frame it like that, um, I think you're going to get an honest answer. And because, I mean, if they say, well, you know, maybe she'll, I don't know, maybe it'll make her feel a little bit better. Well, are there other ways that we could do that? I mean, mm-hmm. so what are we ultimately trying to achieve is, I think, one thing. Mm-hmm. So I would just encourage people to be proactive because the worst thing the physician's going to say is, no, she's nowhere near that or he, he's not ready for that right now. But then you've had that conversation. So when they are ready, the physician will be more he'll be more prone to have that discussion with you then. So that's, that's one thing I would say. And then um, another thing I would just say is just to think through again, it's just, there's just no downside. There's just, there's no penalty. You don't sacrifice anything. Um, And when, and when they come on hospice, I mean, from a purely economic standpoint, I mean, hospice provides all of their medications that are related to their, to their hospice care. And we provide all their disposable supplies. I mean, so these are things that they're having to come up with and go to the pharmacy and all these things are doing that we're going to do for them. And they're just at that point, they quit being the nurse and they can be the daughter or they can be the son. And that's what they're supposed to be doing at this point. That's a good word. So and and unrelated question here, but uh, just in terms of your observation. So some of these people listening, obviously, are going to be ministering to people mm-hmm. and visiting families who are in hospice and things like this. Anything in terms of just what you've observed, your experiences, that would help our specifically elders and deacons who may be, who may be doing this, or, or members, obviously, who are ministering to other people, um, as they go visit people who are, who are in hospice care, anything that you would say, just important do this don't do this things that stand out i i would just say take their lead okay uh, and and don't go in with an agenda um right and and just meet them where they are and what they want to what they want to deal with um one of the good things about if they're on hospice that topic has been broached. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they've heard that, and that's, that's, so it's out there. But they may or may not want to talk about it. I, I just think it's just the whole ministry of presence. Mm-hmm. And yeah. just, just be present with them, take their lead, and just, I mean, that, that accomplishes more than anything else. So, Bob, you don't go in and say, you look terrible. Yeah. Just, just want to let you know that. I like to give tips to Bob from time to time on doing pastoral care. That's right. About that. Hey, let me just say one thing, and, and uh, uh, I don't know how I want to frame this even, but my father, when my father passed away, my mother also, we had hospice. And I tell you, it was, um, this is not too much of an over-dramatization, dra- dra- if I can say the word. I had a friend who worked with Mother Teresa in India. And how she recounted that the home for the it's a hospice. It's what Mother Teresa mm-hmm. did. Uh, the 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 people that came to tend to my mom and my dad were like Mother Teresa. Wow. I mean that that that's the heart of what you guys do. Yeah. Now I'm sure there are there's a wicked horrible hospice nurse out there. 
who's like Cruella Deville, uh-huh. maybe somewhere. <laughs> I don't know that she probably wouldn't last long. But I tell you that what we've experienced, and other people I've talked to, they say yeah. bringing these people in here, we thought, ooh, it's a little bit. But it was like angels visiting our home. Yeah. So I just want to commend what you do. Totally brother. endorse that, mm-hmm. and I will tell you that is one of the main reasons why I. That's the greatest fringe benefit I have, and why I stay in it. Because you work with some of the greatest people mm-hmm. on earth. Mm-hmm. It, it is just the people whose hearts are in it, and you got two sets of people that are in hospice. They're either it's their first year, and they're trying to mm-hmm. decide if this is right for them, mm-hmm. and then you got the lifers. Yeah, nobody's yeah. in between. Mm-hmm. They're just saying, yeah, it's a paycheck, and you mm-hmm. know, it's it's mm-hmm. a pretty good job, mm-hmm. and I got good benefits. Mm-hmm. No, nobody's doing that in hospice. It's too hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. they're either in it. They're either all mm-hmm. in, or they're on their way out. Mm-hmm. And when you get those all in people, I mean, mm-hmm. man, you know it. And it's they're just great. I mm-hmm. I just I get chills every time I talk mm-hmm. about it with them because mm-hmm. it's just some great people out there. What's the hardest part for you? Because you're, you're not you're not you're, you don't go into you're not the nurse you're not though you're you're managing. Well, What's the hardest part I mean, for I'm you? doing a startup business, so I'm doing a little bit of everything right now. So, <laughs> um, but so yeah, I've actually yeah, gone. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not providing the right. hands-on care. Right. Um, you know, I don't know. What's the hardest part for me? Um, it's just not it's not hard (laughs) I mean it's I mean it's hard but I mean it's like there's just so few jobs out there where you can go home I mean and you guys are have Mm -hmm. one of them too but there's you can count on one hand the number of jobs out there that where you go home and you don't wonder if you're making a difference Mm -hmm. you know you're making a difference you see it Mm -hmm. and when you got that I mean I mean it's just everything else it just kind of puts everything in perspective I mean I mean, the, the hardest part is probably dealing with all the the regulation. It's a highly, highly regulated business. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest thing is just dealing with all the rules and regulations that you have. When you when 95% of your reimbursement comes from the government, you, you have a lot of hoops sure. you have to jump through. Sure. And that gets very frustrating because I'm not a very... I don't like all that minutia and bureaucracy, and so, but but that's just part of it. But you but you have the motivation to do that because you know that what you're doing is making a difference and it's worth it. And so, um, that that's but so it's just really it's not it's not hard per se because it's just such a good thing. Well, it's a great place to stop. So we don't promote businesses or people, places or things here, but what's the name of your business? <laughs> um, it's called Capstone Hospice. Capstone Hospice. Oh, which sure. is a reference in mm-hmm. Psalm 118 about mm-hmm. the stone the builders rejected has um, become the capstone. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So people can Google that if they want to get just more information. Yeah, we have a website. Yeah, so you can Google go to capstonehospice.com yeah. Yeah. and um, just find learn out more. more information. Yeah. Well, brother, we appreciate what you do thank and you. how you do it, and we're so glad that you're here. With Likewise. Appreciate what and, you uh, guys do. Thanks so much. So, brothers and sisters, those of you who are listening to this, uh, this may be one you have to think about a little bit because it may not have been in your wheelhouse kind of driving into work this morning. What do I do about hospice care? Do I have it? Will I get it? How about my parents, et cetera, et cetera? So, but think about it a little bit. The time will come for all of us, uh, for our parents, uh, relatives, friends, aunts, and uncles, and uh, so it's something that the wise man and woman just begins to, to um, consider as you go forward. So hopefully that's helpful to you. And we hope, as always, you will join us and listen again on the next edition of One for the Road. <laughs>